All right, if you would like to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. In chapter 2, Timothy was given instruction by Paul on how worship should be done in the local church. And it is for all churches in all places at all times. Uh, I think this outlines well what should be done when we gather together in worship. And I encourage you to visit chapter 2 often. Uh, now, in chapter 3, Paul outlines the duties, responsibilities, qualifications, and some would say the aspirations uh, for the two main church leadership positions. I know that some churches are hyper-organized and have a, a hierarchy, indeed, and even a flow chart of how authority runs in the church. The Bible knows nothing of that whatsoever. There are only two church offices that are outlined for us here uh, in the chapter before us. Overseers, the Greek word is episkopos, epi, meaning on or upon, skopos, where you look through a scope. So the overseers have oversight of all church functions. Uh, it is interesting, the word episkopos itself, the OS ending, tells you that it is masculine in gender. It's not neuter and it's not feminine. And there are no exceptions in the New Testament, no exceptions to the pastoral office being nominative, masculine, singular. I know that in this age of feminism that was born in the late 1800s and, and seems to be uh, running many things in the world today, understand that whatever cultural trends we see today do not nullify the Word of God. Now, I know that, that there is a part of each of us that has a heart of rebellion. I remember a conversation many, many years ago with a, a lady who, who had told me uh, when I had just come back from seminary, she said, well, God's called me to be a pastor. And I said, really, what makes you think that? She said, well, I like the Word of God and I like telling people what to do. Excuse me? And I said... As, as kindly and as gently as I could, I said, well, here, looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says, here's the trustworthy saying, if anyone, that word anyone is masculine, it's not feminine, it's masculine. If anyone sets his heart, it doesn't say her heart. On being an overseer, the very word itself, overseer in Greek, is a masculine singular noun. He, there's another masculine pronoun for us, desires a noble task. Just in that one verse, I told this precious lady, I said, you know, the pastorate seems to be reserved for male leadership within the church. As Adam was given headship over creation, as we see the patriarchs coming down, they, the descendants of David would always sit on a throne. They were exclusively male the only exception is found, one of the kings of Judah died quickly and his mother seized the throne. Her name was Athaliah, one of the most wicked women that ever was said anything about in the Bible. Her reign lasted for a short period of time, fortunately, but she was wicked and, and, and finally assassinated in office. But it said that she desired her son's kingship. 
her son Ahaziah had died, and she desired that. That's a fascinating Hebrew word. It says all the way back in Genesis, when Eve looked at the fruit of the tree that was forbidden to eat, it says that she desired to eat of the fruit. She didn't and gave some to her husband. The next chapter, it says, God confronting Cain, who had some murderous thoughts towards his brother, God said, Cain, sin is crouching at the door, and it desires to control you. So there is wrapped up in that word something that is very ungodly, that gives way to the weakness of our flesh, but has nothing to do with the testimony of God's Scripture. So regardless of what, I, and I'm not, please, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I am here to tell you uncompromisingly what the Word of God says. When I brought all of, just verse 1, and I've only got a hundred other passages, when I brought that to this aspiring pastor lady's attention, she ultimately said, and I went through the Greek, went through all this, you know, as gently and as kindly as I could, and you know what she said at the bottom end of it? And this told me everything about the word desire. She said, I don't care what the Word of God says. I desire to be a pastor. <clears throat> that is such a bitter pill to swallow. I, I tried my best to, to correct this young lady. God had never given her the opportunity after that to become a pastor. In fact, a very short time later, she died. I don't know what your feelings on feminism are. We've all been created in the image of God. Amen. I'm not here to deprecate women in any way, shape, or form. God made us in his image. But he has said that the headship within the family, within the church, God has given to men and will hold them responsible for that. Not to be dictators, but to be shepherds, to be, have general oversight of. Now, not all men are gifted at numbers. Sometimes the women run the books. That's great. Keep them out of jail. That's fine. But sometimes men shouldn't be running the books. <laughs> but there is this principle of headship. The word in the Old Testament for God is Elohim. The I am ending denotes Hebrew plurality in excess of two, but it's a masculine noun. God's a guy. God's a guy. So ladies, please don't fluff up in an attitude of resentment and feminism at what I'm saying, but will you love Jesus enough to let him speak to you, whether it offends you or not? In the say, understand culture is, is all around us pressuring us to conform to its image. I say we allow ourselves to be conformed to Jesus' image by his word. If you're a Bible-believing Christian today, you have no room for offense against me or anyone else. If we are just simply open to God's word, you can say, Lord, speak for your servant listens. But having said that, as I have gone through this chapter many times in the history of this church, I have been called every unkind and uncharitable name you can imagine. <sighs> You're masochistic. You're a, a woman beater. You're a anti-feminist. You're a this. I want to be a biblicist. True to the Word of God. 
uncompromisingly. I don't, I'm not, it's not a popularity contest. And Paul is going to outline that for us in chapter 3. Wanting to be a pastor is not to be given to somebody just to be so they can be popular. Sometimes Paul's message got him thrown in jail. Sometimes his message about Jesus got him whipped and beaten. And, and as we are tempted, some, in some circles anyway, to call Paul uncharitable names, understand as he delineated the roles of women within the church and the giftedness that God has given them, he was considered a radical feminist in his day. So it's really all a matter of cultural perspective over time. But what we can't do is look at Scripture through the lens of culture. We've got to look at culture through the lens of Scripture. It has to be authoritative over your life and belief system and mine. Regardless of personal feelings or what they try to cram down your throat when you turn on the nightly news. Let the Word of God program your thinking and, and, and not the world. So these overseers, the word diakonos, the OS ending tells you again, it's masculine in verbiage. It's the only two offices there are. I know there are many churches that have many other offices past that. And today, you'd, it's not, it used to be just pastor was good enough. And now there's executive pastors and assisting pastors and associate pastors and lay pastors and worship pastors. Well, none of that's biblical. I mean, just understand that. None of that's biblical. There are pastors. There are deacons. Okay, there's lots of people serving in the church because of their spiritual gifts. Every one of us has a place in ministering in the body of Christ, and that's a wonderful thing. But there's only two uncomplicated church offices that Paul refers to here. And Paul is telling Timothy, not only impress this upon the church there at Ephesus, Timothy, where I left you, tell the people this, but this is the practice in all of the churches, in all of the churches, in all places at all times. It's not just a cultural thing that was limited to Timothy's situation in Ephesus or Paul's as he writes Timothy from Macedonia, northern Greece. Stuart Briscoe, a neat pastor that I have followed online and read several of his books, once wrote on the qualifications of a pastor, he must have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the hide of a rhinoceros. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that's helpful. While you should have the heart of a rhinoceros, what a pastor can never allow is that to harden his heart. Pastors shouldn't be easily offended. I mean, lots of stuff is said and written about on social media or in person today. You know, pastor can't be thin-skinned. Well, I don't disagree with you, pastor. Well, don't fluff up. Who cares? <laughs> you know, take it up with God. That's fine. I'm doing the best I can. I'm researching it. Are you? You know, heart of a scholar, heart of a child, hide of a rhinoceros. But never, never, never allow your heart to get hard. Have you noticed that Satan has thrown enough difficulty in your life that at several different points in time in your life, you have hardened your heart? Dare I say, every single person in this room has experienced enough pain at one time or another in your life, one difficult circumstance or another, that your heart became hard. He said, I'm never going to trust a man again. I'm never going to trust a woman again. I, I'm never going to trust God again. Some of you may have even walked away from your faith for a time. 
Never, never, never allow the bitterness and hardness of life to harden your heart. Jesus went through everything just as we do, and it, nay, he never hardened his heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his own, never stop loving. We've all got excuses. Oh, this guy screwed me over here. Oh, this guy took financial advantage of me here. That's happened to us all. This happened to every single one of us. But don't allow Satan to harden your heart over those things. It's so easy because women are married to imperfect men and men are married to imperfect women. It is so easy when one of them stumbles to harden the heart against him and say, I'll never love you again. I'll never trust you again. I'll never forgive you. Just like Satan wants. Understand that only hurts you, not the person you're holding the grudge against. How many of your sins has God forgiven? Are you greater than God? Then who are you to hold the sins of another person against them? Simple, isn't it? Forgive. You've been forgiven much. Forgive others. You've been loved much. Love others. That godliness is the chief characteristic that must be present in overseers and deacons in this passage. He's going to get into some specifics and some details here, but basically what he's going to say is if you don't have love, you don't have anything. And it is not just men are given the position of overseer and, and deacons just because of their gender. Gender does not qualify anyone to any church office of leadership. It's not your gender that, that's the issue. Paul says literally in verse 1, here's a trustworthy saying, if, I, if anyone, that's masculine, sets his heart, that's masculine, on being an overseer, that's masculine, he, that's masculine, desires a noble task, literally a noble work. It should be work. It's an energetic term that is used there. Trustworthy is the saying. Trustworthy. He's going to use that phrase often in his writings. Uh, what he's saying is, is, in other words, this is, this is a good and noble and honorable work, but don't be lazy. W ministry is work. You will be opposed sometimes. Sharing the gospel is sometimes inconvenient. You'll get calls in the middle of the, of the night. You'll have to do things outside. You may have your, a seminary degree, but maybe the bushes need trimming out front and the lawn needs mowing. I mean, it's work sometimes. I know that as we age, we're looking for less work instead of more, but understand this, it's work because we're opposed by Satan at every turn. Do all of your work as unto the Lord. That should be the thing that drives you passionately in all that you do. Boy, that encompasses pretty much everything you got going on. In all that you do, work as unto the Lord. If you have a King James Version of the Bible... Uh, verse 1 describes this office as that of bishop. Bishop. That's an old, old English word that literally came from by skopos. Bishop is how it was eventually pronounced, but it meant a guy with both eyes on the ministry. 
It was full-time ministry. So that's where the word bishop came from. It's in archaic, the literal Greek, episkopos, means to have oversight of everything. So the pastor, while he doesn't do everything, is responsible for everything. Hmm. One who has general oversight. Overseers are to give themselves, according to Acts chapter 6, to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, because there's only so much of little Jimmy Etheridge to, to push around on this piece of bread like so much peanut butter, I can't do all things, so I don't try to run the Sunday school while I'm teaching in, in the sanctuary. I don't try to trim bushes out there uh, when I'm doing something inside, so sometimes I need help. Those guys, you can call them whatever you want to, assisting pastors. The qualifications are the same, whether they're assisting or whether they're a senior pastor. But they, they still have to meet the biblical qualifications. But I have guys on staff to do things that I should be, I should be devoting myself to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Whatever they're doing is less important. I have to devote myself to this. So if the bushes still need to be trimmed, the grass needs to be mowed, I need my associate pastors to do that. And you say, well, that sounds kind of inglorious. That doesn't sound like pastoral calling to me, mowing the lawn. Well, if I don't do it, somebody has to. Somebody in the church, somebody in the ministry. But we shouldn't ever get to the point where we say, I'm above that. So I want to clean the bathrooms if they need clean. I want to take out the trash if it needs taken out. I don't want to ever think that I am above that. But if I'm setting that example for you, feel free to follow. You see a full trash can? You do not need pastoral approval to take it out. We're out of toilet paper in the bathroom? Well, the janitor's closet's right next to it. Feel free to grab a roll of toilet paper. You don't have to interrupt a sermon. Pastor Jim, Pastor Jim, we're out of toilet paper in stall number three. Come on, be a servant. Wasn't Jesus? Aren't we all supposed to be? Sure, we're all in this thing together. Here's the trustworthy saying. If a guy sets his heart, if he desires that, to exercise oversight, he desires a noble task. Now, an overseer must be above reproach. I want you to notice in these qualifications that we're going to share, leadership has nothing to do with giftedness. It has everything to do with godliness. The spiritual gifts are distributed as the Holy Spirit sees fit. Some have it in one measure. Some have it in a greater or lesser measure. That's okay. But notice what is mentioned first is character qualifications, not educational qualifications, not looks qualifications. How come we only elect people to office that have a full head of hair and are skinny? Where do we get that role model? Not from the Bible. And yet that's how often churches pick pastors. Is he young? Is he enthusiastic? Is he energetic? None of those qualifications are listed here. I remember one time many, many, many years ago, I was in, in church leadership, and they were looking for a, a new pastor, and, and I said, well, what are you looking for in a pastor? I asked the head board member, and he said, well, we're looking for a guy who's, uh, you know, preferably got his PhD, but we'll settle for a master's degree, and somebody who's this, and somebody who's that, somebody who's this, and somebody who's that. And I said, hmm, how come none of those are mentioned in the Bible? 
None of those. It says here in 1 Timothy 3, you're looking for a guy with an education, but I don't see education listed in 1 Timothy 3. You're looking for a guy who's young and energetic, but it doesn't say anything about a pastor should be young and energetic. In other words, you're looking for a pastor who's more of the world than of the Scripture. There's, there's got to be some Christian character. But boy, we can make fatal mistakes in the church if we start picking pastors like the world picks its leaders. Be careful of that. An overseer must, notice it's not an elective, must be above reproach. It doesn't say Bible college. It doesn't say seminary. It doesn't say the pastor's got to be a good talker or he has to have a lot of natural or spiritual gifts because they, they in and of themselves don't qualify a person for spiritual leadership. Samson was the most spiritually gifted man of his time and would have made a terrible pastor. Samson in the Old Testament, pretty carnal guy. Would you agree with that? Yet he was the strongest man on the earth. Spiritually gifted, yeah, totally carnal. How about Solomon? Wisest person on the whole planet. There's a spiritual gift for you. Had a thousand wives. What? Paul will address that here. An overseer must be not only above reproach, but the husband of but one wife. Now, what Paul doesn't say is divorced men can't be pastors, although that is true in many denominations across the world today. But Paul knows what the word divorce is in Greek. He had used it in addressing the church at Corinth. Jesus knew what the word divorce was, and yet neither Jesus nor Paul ever said divorced men can never be used by God again in the pastorate or any other role. He didn't say that. Must be the husband of but one wife must be. I think the real issue is, does he desire this position with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength? Has God called him to this? Does he feel the call of his life? Does that desire show itself in his conduct? Are there others available who would better fulfill the qualifications of this list? I think the qualifications here are clear indicators of godly character and spiritual maturity. That's what's required. Verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife. There was a lot of polygamy in the Old Testament. Talk about polygamy. <laughs> husband of one wife. The literal Greek says he has to be a one-woman man. doesn't say that he has to be married. But if he is, he needs to be devoted to a single spouse. In other words, this polygamy thing, it doesn't work. It's out of God's perfect will. Don't do it. So the husband of one wife. It doesn't say that the husband can't remarry in the death of his, of his wife. It says a one-woman man, a one-woman kind of man in character. If you say no... It really means that he must be married, really. Then neither Jesus nor the Apostle Paul would be qualified to be spiritual leaders in our church. Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. So that's not the... It doesn't say a pastor must be married. It doesn't say that. Nor the, is the idea that he could never remarry if he was biblically divorced or passed away. Paul had used the term before. He does not use the term divorce here. The Old Testament, while it didn't specifically uh, forbid polygamy, boy, I'll tell you what, it let the results speak for themselves. If you think polygamy is a good idea, guys, ask your wife what she thinks about it. 
Honey, how about I bring home another wife? I mean, you're the chief wife, of course. She'll be kind of the secondary wife, but she's going to, you know, she may or may not sleep with us. You know, I mean, what do you, what do you think? There is an innate part of a woman that says you're to be a one-woman kind of man. First mention of polygamy in the Bible comes through the line of Cain. Yeah, the guy who murdered his brother. The line of Cain, uh, he murdered his brother Abel. This, that man's name was Lamech found in Genesis chapter 4, and his pride and arrogance was off the charts, but he's the first polygamist in the entire Bible, and he's so far out of the will of God, he's not even mentioned. You look at Abraham, while a godly man, he took Sarah as a wife, and then Hagar. She gave birth to Ishmael. Sarah had this great idea, I can't have kids, why don't you have sex with my slave? What? <laughs> How about we trust God? How about we pray? If he wants you pregnant, you can get pregnant. It doesn't matter if you're 100 years old. Nothing but issues and conflicts. How about Jacob? He was married to Leah and Rachel. Nothing but issues and conflict between them and their kids. How about David? Eight wives? Eight wives? The, while the Bible doesn't specifically condemn him, it, he, the Bible lets the results speak for themselves. There was nothing but murder, intrigue, rape, incest amongst his children. Bathsheba? Not to be outdone by his father, Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines. <laughs> Guys, you can't handle the one you got. I can't, I don't have any idea what you do with a thousand women. I mean, how many of those are PMS in a month? You know, you, th you think through the conflict, the envy, the jealousy, the kids, the half kids hating each other's guts and fights and squabbles, uh, a thousand wives and concubines, according to 1 Kings chapter 11. <laughs> so what Paul is saying, yeah, you, you should avoid that like the plague. Don't do that. Don't do that. You're asking for trouble. But we knew that in our heart of hearts. But let's not be judgmental about divorced men being pastors. It doesn't forbid divorced men in verse 2 to be pastors. You want to find out why they're divorced. You want to find out what's going on. Sometimes the guys are the victims here. And the church is willing to throw them under the bus. I was told in one denominational church I was a part of, oh, 45 years ago now, that divorce is the unforgivable sin. Really? What's the problem with that? It's not biblical. It's just not biblical. Anytime the church starts applying unbiblical standards in the practice of its faith, it's already started down a troublesome path. You do not want to take that. Husband but one wife, temperate. What does that mean? That means the husband has to do whatever temperature his wife likes in the church. I mean, women are always too cold and men are always too hot. In fact, I saw <laughs> a cartoon one time. If you will fill out your temperature preference card this morning and drop it in the offering plate, we will average them out and adjust the thermostat accordingly. That's not what temperate means. Temperate means moderation in the use of alcohol. Moderation, in it does not forbid a pastor to indulge in alcohol. 
It doesn't. I'm sorry. Maybe you have very strong feelings about alcohol, and I, that's fine. I have no problem with that at all. But what we can't do is lay extra-biblical expectations on the pastor. I know many denominations uh, feel differently about that. That's between them and the Lord. But in this church, we will follow the Word of God. Pastors can drink. doesn't mean that pastors must drink. You're free to abstain. You're free to indulge, but only to a very small extent. That's what the word temperate means here. So whatever your pastoral or personal thoughts are about alcohol, notice that Paul stops short of requiring abstinence. Paul has a better vocabulary than anybody in the New Testament. He has a better handle on the Koine Greek than anybody, and if he meant pastors can never have a drink of anything else, he could have said that very clearly, but he didn't. He said, if you indulge in alcohol, it should be in moderation. And I think, quite frankly, if you want to be a godly man, this applies to everybody. Never drink more than two. I don't care what you're drinking. It can be Pepsi. You shouldn't drink more than two Pepsi. It'll rot your guts. Your teeth will fall out of your head, etc. You want to be careful. But if you indulge in alcohol, and I've seen abuse in church functions before, where people uh, feel, well, okay, uh, I'm, at, I'm not inside the sanctuary, so Pastor Jim can't spank me. But it's okay if I get drunk outside the church. No, it's not. I've been to, quote, Christian weddings where way too much alcohol was consumed by people that held church office. That's biblically forbidden. Never drink more than two. Walk away. Just say no. Exercise enough self-control as a, a person pursuing godliness to say, yeah, I don't need more than that. Anything more than that's going to compromise you. You'll start looking where you shouldn't be looking. You'll start talking about things you shouldn't be talking about. You'll start acting in ways that you would not have acted unless you were under the influence of alcohol. But you already knew that. I'm just telling you what you already know. <clears throat> Avoid that. That's what Paul is saying here when he says, be temperate, be self-controlled, self-controlled. Isn't that a fruit of the Holy Spirit? Mm. That's what you should strive to be as a godly man or a woman. In this case, in respect to pastorates, they must be not only temperate, husband of one wife, self-controlled. They must be respectable. Respectable. It doesn't mean perfect. <laughs> respectable. It means that they are the ones that bring peace in a chaotic situation. It means blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God. It means to bring order out of chaos is what the original word meant in Greek, as opposed to disorderly or argumentative or adversarial. That doesn't help anybody in the church. For you to be argumentative or adversarial, can't do that. It means to be appropriate in, in your behavior, mature, decent, civilized in conduct. Verse 3, not given to drunkenness. Oh, he's to be respectable, hospitable, able to teach, but he doesn't say in verse 2, what, to what degree? There are great teachers out there today and always have been in the church. There are others with a more modest amount of that spiritual gift. But whether they can teach their way out of a paper bag or not, they should be able to teach, but they should not be elected as pastor just 
because they have the gift of teaching in abundance. How about the character to go with it? That's what's important. We, we tend to get this so backwards. I've been a part of church boards that got this so backwards in times past where they're looking for a radio personality or a celebrity pastor. No, 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 no. The mistake that you and I make is we hear him on the radio and we make assumptions about how close they are to the Lord. Oh, he's such a marvelous teacher. That tells you nothing about whether they're godly or not. Oh, they're so enthusiastic. They're so dynamic. They're so energetic and they're so young. Are they godly? What do you know about their conduct? The guys you watch on TV, oh, greatest preacher I ever heard. What do you know about their personal life? Nothing. What do you know about their godliness, their character, their conduct? Do they even read the Bible for themselves without sermon preparation being involved? Do they have a prayer life at all? How's their marriage? How's their kids? Verse 3, not given to drunkenness. When does drunkenness set in? Well, the state of Colorado will tell you. You blow more than 0.1, you're drunk. You know, well, I don't feel drunk. It doesn't matter what you feel. Have you had more than one drink per hour? Then you'll blow drunk. Buzzed driving is the same as drunk driving. But somehow or another, at special occasions, we feel that we can take the cuffs off that and exercise a little less self-control. No, you can't. Be the same inside and outside of the church. Be a man or woman of godly conduct. Don't be given to excess. Not violent, but gentle, verse 3 says. Not quarrelsome or, or contentious. Not a lover of money. Y you don't want a pastor who is always arguing, contentious, fighting over something. I think those kind of people have unresolved anger issues, to tell you the truth, and have no place in church leadership. Paul warns, uh, as he does to Timothy in 2 Timothy, have nothing to do with vain and foolish arguments. Don't argue. I get no shortage of phone calls or people at the door sometime that just want to engage in argument. I had a call uh, just last week, and a guy called and says, hey, I've read your statement of faith. You believe in the Trinity. And I said, yeah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you believe in three gods? No, we don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God manifesting himself through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've only got about 200 references that I could give you on that, but no, we believe in one God, but we see even in the beginning uh, verses of Genesis, Elohim, the I am ending, Elohim is the Hebrew word for God, I am denotes a plurality in excess of two, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's brooding over the waters of creation there. How about when Jesus was baptized? Uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon him in the form of a dove. Jesus is coming up out of the water. The Father parts the heavens and speaks and says, this is my son. Listen to him. If you don't believe in a Trinitarian God, you, you're at odds to, to explain that, aren't you? And anyway, this guy, he just fluffed up. And when I tried to bring these things to him, he started talking over the top of me. I, I don't, I'm not questioning his salvation or anything like that. But it turned into an argument. And I said, well, you know, I, I just don't, don't want to go there. And, and then finally he, in this outburst of anger, said, and when I, he said, he said, you're trying to tell me about Hebrew? He said, buddy, I teach Hebrew. I said, yeah, this conversation's over. Thank you. Lord bless you. Have a good day. You say, that's not very pastoral. You'd rather me argue with him? What's the Bible say? 
He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to look at the evidence for a Trinitarian God. He wanted to argue. He wanted to argue. Don't do that. You want to argue one form of theology? Don't do that. You want to argue pre-mill, post-mill, or ah-mill, or who cares, the mill, and sausage mill, gravy mill. I don't, whatever mill you want to argue, don't argue over that. It's just not worth it. That's like saying, do you like hot dogs or hamburgers? I think they're both divine. I don't have a preference, but people argue about what, if, you, if I have you over to my house, well, what should I feed you? I don't know. Tell me what your diet is. Do you like veggies? We'll make veggies. You like meat? We'll bring meat. Meat, of course, is of God, so I'll just leave it at that. But going on, he says there in verse 4, part of the, the qualifications, he must manage his own family well. That doesn't mean he has perfect kids. Nobody does because they don't have perfect parents. He should manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Uh, and again, this is an aspiration as well as a qualification. Uh, I want my kids always to treat me with proper respect, but they sometimes struggled with that when they were teenagers. Did yours? <laughs> were you one of those rebellious teenagers? Yeah. But eventually we get past that phase and we learn that things go better when we respect mom and dad. And it's a biblical command right out of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Sure it is. We find that the household's a lot more peaceful when the kids are a lot less rebellious. They can get over that. There's shots to cure that. Take them to the doctor or something. Something, <laughs> something has to be done. Give them away until they turn 18, then bring them back home. I, I, there are options. <laughs> Maybe pursued. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Yeah, faithful in little things make you a ruler over much is kind of the, the principle that is there. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. This is where our word neophyte comes from. The word neophyte in Greek literally means newly planted. Newly planted. In other words, it's not a good idea to put new believers into positions of leadership until they've been allowed to grow long enough to develop some deep roots. You don't want them easily shaken. You don't, you don't want them crying at the other, oh, some guy just called me and rebuked me, man. <laughs> really? Where's the hide of the rhinoceros that's required here? You know, well, every little thing disturbs me. Really? Okay, well, you should, probably shouldn't be a pastor then. There's, you know, Walmart's hiring. You should, you should check it out. <clears throat> it's not a good idea to put them into leadership until they, they develop some deep roots. There, here's the mistake we make. We interpret their enthusiasm for godliness. Oh, they're excited. Their hair's on fire. And in fact, new converts are just fun. They're fun. They're generally stupid. But they're fun. They're enthusiastic, and that's wonderful. But that does not qualify them for the maturity required in spiritual leadership. Let them grow, encourage their faith, let them praise the Lord, encourage their enthusiasm, and their knowledge base will increase over time. So you don't want to dampen the enthusiasm, you want to encourage that as they mature in the Lord, but give them the time to mature. Don't just say, oh, you're enthusiastic, you got born again last Sunday? Okay, great, how'd you like to run Sunday school? You'll kill them. I mean, that's setting them up to fail. You don't want to do that. 
there's a lot involved there that requires spiritual maturity. Enthusiasm doesn't automatically uh, qualify you to ministry. And what Paul says here is something that we've learned a, a long time ago. Pride is an occupational hazard in the ministry. Look at verse 6 again. He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited. Pride is an occupational hazard. As soon as your church starts growing, as soon as you start getting on radio, as soon as people start talking about you, as soon as, start, as people start telling you what a great preacher you are, it's so easy for pride to set in. It is an occupational hazard in the ministry. Beware of pride. Listen carefully. Because it is the sin that turned angels into demons. That's why pride must be avoided at all costs. Paul would later say, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Pastors should be humble. They shouldn't be bragging on themselves. They shouldn't be saying, do you know how big my church is? Oh, we're going here. Oh, I was invited to speak at so-and-so's big church over there. Oh, I have heard that from too many pastors' mouths. It has made me at times shun pastors' conferences because they get together. Well, how big is your church? Ooh, how fast did your church grow? Ooh, how much money? You guys got money in the bank? Ooh, how's that $10 million building? Oh, lots of traps set by the devil out there that we must be aware of. Verse 7, the pastoral candidate must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and come into the devil's trap. I think the devil sets special snares for pastors. Pride and conceit there in verse 6, I've seen it in way too many pastors, and God has to humble them, and when they don't... Uh, correct themselves, God has to, and it turns out pretty ugly. There are some that struggle with money. We'll read about that later in chapter 6. and verse 9, uh, some pastors struggle with women, with ambition, jealousy, envy. On the other hand, some really struggle with depression and low self-esteem and self-worth issues that they try to hide from the people. There needs to be godly character as a foundation. There needs to be an unshakable rock bed of faith in the pastor that allows him to weather any storm, any church split, any unhappy parishioner, anybody that calls, any argumentative person at the front door. You need that foundation found in Christ Jesus that comes over time with reading and prayer and worship and fellowship. It just takes time. Maturity can't be rushed. Take time, but make sure that you're making the investment in growth. Sometimes you just have to wait. Kathy put a pan of brownies in the stove uh, yesterday for tonight's ice cream social. If you haven't had Kathy's brownies, you have not touched heaven yet. They are wonderful. A dose of ice cream on a little whipped cream, cherry on top, you will die. You will just, well, not literally, but you will just think, I, I've gone to heaven. It, it's wonderful stuff. <clears throat> she gave me the bowl to lick out. Is that the best part of, of brownies or cookies or what? Before it's cooked, it's way better than after. So she cooked it, and, uh, and, and so after 10 minutes, I'm kind of thinking the brownies ought to come out, and we ought to eat them. Save them for the ice cream social, maybe the second batch. <laughs> Ten minutes goes by. 
come on, brownies, get with it. Maybe if I turn up the oven to 500. It just takes time. So Kathy asked me to set the timer for 25 minutes. Okay, 25 minutes. Never has time gone by so slowly in my entire life. 25 minutes arrives and I'm thinking, we're going to have some hot brownies. She goes in the kitchen, she pushes on, what does that accomplish? I don't know what that does. But women like to push on that stuff, you know. I'll push on it, give me my hammer, I'll go after that. She says, needs another 10 minutes. What? <laughs> you pushed wrong. There's something wrong with your fingers or something. <sighs> Maturity takes time as well. You can't be rushed. Be patient. You're growing. You're learning. We're not, nobody's there yet. And you'll keep maturing, hopefully, until the day you die because there is such a sweet brownie waiting for us in heaven, it can't even be described. It just takes time. It takes time. So you want to be slow in, in, in deciding who you're going to put into the pastoral office. You want to consider all, all of these things. There needs to be that godly conduct, that godly character. You want to make sure that while nobody's perfect, you have a man who has a foundation of faith in Christ Jesus, who's got some maturity, that he's not a recent convert, that he doesn't have issues of, of money and greed and, and womanizing and stuff like that. There is way too much womanizing going on in the church. I hate it. I hate it with a passion. Guys, on the greet time, go greet, guys. Leave the women to the women, okay? I don't want to see all the guys always gravitating towards the same women and then shaking their hand and grabbing the other hand and just fawning over them for the next 10 minutes. Would you stop that? That's carnal. Do not do that. Pastors are forbidden to do that. Men must stop. So ladies, help your husband out. If you see him consistently every meet and greet time, you have in his church making a beeline to some woman, you slap him in Jesus' name. Slap that demon out of him. There's help for that man. You need to have an honest conversation about where the guy's eyes are going and where his mind is going. It's inappropriate. That's what he's saying. In your pastoral leadership, you want guys that not that are perfect, but are trying to be. You want guys that are mature, but are still maturing. You don't want to pick a new convert. You don't want a womanizer in any position in your church at all. I hate womanizing. It's immoral. It's wrong. It gives Satan a foothold in our marriages, our homes. It destroys churches. It's got to stop. Amen? <sighs> Ladies, help me with this. Help your husbands. You see him do this, something this far out of line? Feel free to say, honey, can I talk to you? Don't do that. Talk to him. Pray with him. But men have to learn to exercise self-control. Watch where your eyes go. You drink too much alcohol, your eyes will always go to the wrong place. Your thought life will always go to the wrong place. So don't drink too much. Don't wander too much. Don't womanize. Are there any questions? And you say, well, this only applies to you. You're the overseer. This may apply to your deacons because they're the servants in the church. Maybe it applies to your board members. It doesn't apply to us. Really. All of us have oversight over someone or something. Every one of us is an overseer. Amen? Every one of us has raised kids and done things and been in the workplace or had people that we were over. We're all overseers, and we're all called to be servants. And that's what this passage addresses, overseers and servants. 
you qualify. You're there. Okay, I'll have oversight of the church. I'm not going to ask you to do the books tomorrow morning when we, when we collect the tithes and offerings. You don't have to do that. But understand that this principle of oversight applies to every husband in this room, applies to every woman in this room who has oversight certainly of her children, if not her job situation. We're all in the business of pastoring. Pastor with me. Meet the same qualifications. Do as I do. Like Paul said, Timothy, follow me as I follow the Lord. Just try to do this with the best of your heart. We'll all trip and stumble and fall. That's great. Galatians 6 says when you see a brother or sister do that, you pick them up. You who are, are godly and gently restore them. Don't hammer them. Don't throw them under the bus. Don't disenfranchise them. Don't pull their deacon ordination papers as your first course of action fire them from, from church leadership? How about we find a path to reconciliation? The church is known for shooting its wounded. We have to stop that. Verse 8, deacons, you meet the same exact qualifications. Servants in the church? Now, this is obviously a reference to this first several deacons that the book of Acts mentions for us in, in chapter 6. They were servants in the church, but they were given the name deacon. It just means table waiter, to tell you the truth. It means one who waits on tables, like in a restaurant or something like that. You who serve in the church, you should be men and women of integrity. Deacons, now the word diakonos is a masculine singular in this one. However, in Romans 16, it mentions a gal in verse 1 called Phoebe. The original Greek says a deaconess in the church. So personally, I have no problem with women deaconesses. Now, maybe it's meant in the non-technical sense of the word there that Phoebe was just an outstanding servant in the church. I'm not going to argue about that one way or the other. The word is deaconess. Okay, it's the feminine of the word deacon. So I don't have a problem. I mean, women, quite frankly, are the servants in the church. They really, they, they do amazing things. You know, a lot of them back there in Sunday school, uh, home fellowships, you know, uh, that we've got around. You ask the women, how's your home fellowship? It's great. Until afterward, I've got to do all the dishes. You know, so women are servants by nature. I, I, I love that about them. Boy, they could teach us men a whole lot about that. So guys, feel free to get in the kitchen after tonight's social and wash some dishes. Load the dishwasher, grab a mop, a broom, a shovel. Don't leave it all up to the women. Please, in Jesus' name, do not leave it up to my 72-year-old wife to do it. If you see my wife doing it, you've already screwed up. You're going to leave it to the 72-year-old woman who's been working diligently in this church for 40 years? You're going to leave it to her? Shame on you. Shame on you. People walk by and say, well, Pastor Jim, I saw you out there pushing the lawnmower. I couldn't get anybody else to do it. You think I like as a 70-year-old man out there pushing a Pushing a lawnmower in 95-degree heat, you think that's my idea of a hot time? Well, it is a hot time. But you know what I mean. 
help. That's what a deacon does. Deacons likewise, verse 8, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. In other words, they need to have the same moral character that you expect to see in, in a pastor. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. There needs to be this foundation stone, this bedrock upon which everything else in a man's life is built. Be a man of faith. Whatever spiritual gift you have, be a man of faith as that Bezron. Then nothing can shake you. Nothing can shake you. They must first, 10, verse 10, be tested, these deacon candidates, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. I like the idea of first being tested. You want to make sure before you ask them to help count the tithes and offerings that they don't have a problem with greed and money and avarice. That's what Paul is saying. Look, test them first. Before you, you set them over, you know, visitation home, make sure they don't have a womanizing problem, that they're visiting some woman when she's alone by herself. You want to check these guys out first. And then there is, if they must first be tested, verse 10, and if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate, trustworthy in everything. Verse 11 is fascinating construction in the original language. It says... Literally, <clears throat> the women are to be women worthy of respect. It doesn't say wives in the Greek. It's implied, some think, because of the deacons here above, and certainly it does apply to deacons' wives and to pastors' wives. Yes, I totally agree with that as well. But it kind of uses a generic term for any woman of marriageable age. In the same way, wives are to be women worthy of respect. Shouldn't that be true of every woman in the church? Absolutely. Not malicious talkers. In other words, don't slander. Don't gossip, please. But be, they should be temperate as well. Careful with the alcohol. And trustworthy in everything. This may be talking about women deaconesses. Some have suggested that. Like I said, I don't have a problem one way or another because women are servants by their God-given nature. But because deacons are referred to before and after in this section, it, it uh, seems to refer to the deacons' wives, the pastors' wives. A lot of churches don't ask the pastor's wives any questions when they're candidating. I've been a part of, of many churches that were looking for new pastors and they're candidating guys, and they never ask them about their wives. Is your wife a believer? Is she saved? Is, does she meet the biblical qualifications here as to a deacon's wife or a pastor's wife? Or are they gossips? Do, are they spiritual zeros? Do they read the Bible? Do they pray? Do they teach the younger women in the church to love their husbands as the older women are supposed to do? That's the kind of questions we should be asking because there are, are conditions upon the gals in the church too. You have a very important role in the home and in the church. But take that soberly. It's a spiritual calling. You need to have that foundation of faith. The spiritual gifts will come. Don't worry about that. But you need to be a man or a woman of deep and abiding faith. And you build upon that bedrock. 
Verse 12, same thing. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance of their faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, do it right. God will bless. God will bless. Women were very prominent in the ministry of Jesus. Absolutely. You see, women in positions of responsibility throughout Old Testament, New Testament alike, I would never say anything that would deprecate women at all. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus chose 12 men to be apostles. Men were chosen to be overseers. and Women pastors were unheard of in the early church. Did you know that women started appearing as pastors in the general movement of emancipation that appeared towards the end of the 1800s? It wasn't until the 1800s that this rise of feminism started and, and women were wanting to get into universities and, and they were accepted there. Then there was this tremendous need to replace men that had been caught up in World War I and World War II. Uh, I, I think men being in battle facilitated women having to come into the workplace and, and in these roles that may or may not have fit them well. Modern feminism dictates that women must be a part of everything in every level of society. I think I don't want my wife to bear some of the things that I have to bear. God made men's shoulders broader than women's for a purpose. There are things that men bear up under that would crush a woman. It's been said, described in, in the marriage relationship that men are buffalo and their wives are butterflies. We have to appreciate those differences, but sometimes there is a mantle of responsibility that women you don't want to bear. There are some that you have that I couldn't bear under the best of circumstances. I find it hilarious, the recent, the recent discussions about birthing parents. I've never seen a pregnant guy in my life. So what's what, what in this age of stupidity? What do we, women bear children. Why? Because men aren't nearly men enough to bear children. I've seen women in childbirth, and oh, I'll tell you what, I couldn't do that if you put a gun to my head. And women afterwards, they go, well, that was a piece of cake. Looked like you were dying, honey. I thought you were dying out the daily. You were screaming, shrieking, and out comes this alien. I, you know, I couldn't handle that. The blood, the guts, I think I'm going to pass out. <laughs> yeah, we, men have plenty of limitations, and God gave women strengths in areas that we could only dream about. Women are so emotionally sensitive. Women are so much more discerning than men. That's why we need each other in the body of Christ. We need each other. So men don't deprecate women. Women don't deprecate men. We're all in this thing together. We're all children of God. Amen? Or we're all made in the image of God. God is good. God is good. Well, let's close out this morning's study. Here in verse 14, Paul says, I hope to you come to you soon. I'm writing these things, these instructions, so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Men be spiritual leaders. Women be women of integrity and character in, in your home and in the church, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. That Jesus, He, appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, and was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up to glory. 
That's the foundation of hope that we all have in the church, male or female, young or old. This is the foundation. It is Christ Jesus. What's the secret to godliness? Jesus. Jesus. Talk to him. Read his word. Pray. Seek his face. Have the praise and worship music going on whenever and wherever you can. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the one who builds in each one of us godly character. You're better when you're closer to him and you're worse when you're not. So keep on reading, keep on praying, keep on fellowshipping. Come to tonight's ice cream social and may our conversation tonight be centered on the Lord. Not hobbies, not sports, not cutting the grass or home improvement. Let's focus on the Lord because we're the body of Christ. Amen? Can we stand and close in prayer? All of us are overseers in one capacity or another, overseeing children, workers, churches, but godliness is required in all of these pursuits. Godliness. That's what God wants of you, for you to be a godly man, a godly woman, a godly child. Deacons, deaconesses, all are called to serve. But many see it as a burden rather than a privilege, but all of us are called to serve. But not all serve. We live in a day and an age where the church comes to church to be served. Entertain me, pastor. Serve me, pastor. But God has called every single one of us to be servants, not to be self-centered. Don't come to church for what you can get out of it. Come to church for what you can put into it. You show the world how to worship. You show the world how to pray. You show the world what devotion to Jesus Christ looks like. You show everybody in this room how much you love Jesus. You serve like there's no tomorrow because there may not be. And if God has called you to a significant position of leadership, understand the primary qualification is godliness, both in the guys that are called to the office and the wives that support them because behind every good man is a good woman. Heavenly Father, I praise you that you created not just Adam, but Eve as well, a helpmate suitable for him. Unlike the animals that he named, he could find no help made, nobody that was like him, nobody that was made in the image of God. But you made man and woman, and you caused them to become one flesh, even as you have caused and called the body of Christ to be one church, one God, one Lord, one baptism, and we have allowed the enemy to splinter us into a thousand denominations. God, forgive us. Forgive us in Jesus' name where we have compromised in our own personal godliness. Lord, if we have been womanizers, if we've been given to too much drink, if we have been given to excess greed or avarice, forgive us our sins in Jesus' name and make us strong enough to never commit that sin again. We love you with all of our hearts. We want to know you better with every passing day. So I pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd pour out blessings upon my brothers and sisters, that you would encourage faith in their heart. Nothing was ever accomplished in the kingdom of God without faith and enthusiasm. Help us to find both of them renewed in our lives today as we look to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.